This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 7th, 2019 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are new and um, uncertain of what we're doing, we've been in Ecclesiastes for some time now, and this is the end. So after nearly three and a half months and over a dozen sermons, we have come to the end of Ecclesiastes and perhaps a little closer to the end of emptiness in life. It's my prayer. Now, I learned that some of us uh, might be kind of relieved uh, moving on from such a depressingly dark book, yet I have found others are somewhat disappointed to move on from what they describe as a real freshly honest book about life. Either way, my hope is that uh, as a result of our time in this book that we all have been changed somewhat, that we have a commitment to stop chasing the wind, uh, that we perhaps can find joy in our God-given lot right now, and to hopefully remember more frequently our eternal God before our vapor-like life fades away. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, by way of reminder and just summary, is about the search for meaning in life. And the entire book is really a report of a life experiment of a man who had unlimited resources and unrestrained desire, and he was seeking to find soul satisfaction in every aspect or some aspects of creation apart from the Creator. The search for what he describes as life under the sun, for meaning in life under the sun, is really his search for satisfaction in the horizontal world only. And that's why it was destined to fail. While much pleasure can be found in this life, much wealth built in this life, even much greatness achieved, we see in Solomon, as we have seen in others who have come and gone, that The greatest of lives, the best of lives, the most popular of lives, wealthy of lives, whatever you you want to describe, the greatest of lives, apart from God, cannot make the emptiness go away. The warnings of the preacher, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, the author, is described as. The preacher, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, unfortunately, despite his warnings, isn't going to stop us, or at least a lot of us, from proudly embarking on our own life experiments to fill our own empty hearts because we don't believe him. As I've said before, the older you are, the more you're apt to believe him, and the younger you are, the more apt you are to say, I need to learn that for myself. The heart. Feeling the emptiness in the heart. The heart in the Bible represents that controlling center of our life. Blaise Pascal, famous mathematician and 
and I guess you would say theologian in some regards, he said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard that before. This God-shaped void, this hole, if you will, in a man's heart, like an empty box that's designed to contain one thing only. And that one thing in your heart represents and exists as your greatest loyalty, the, the greatest longing, your greatest love. That one thing guides all decision making. It governs our emotions. It provides us ultimate meaning and often quells our worst fears. The book of Ecclesiastes is the record of one man methodically, I mean not just recklessly, methodically filling that heart with everything there was to find in life to see if it could be filled. And in the end, because he pursued it apart from God, he declares everything under the sun to be meaningless. It's meaningless. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a gift. It's a gift that I have ignored for many years. I was a little intimidated to go through the book because as you read it, it's kind of confusing. It's kind of difficult. It's kind of dark. It's kind of strange. But when you realize that that's pretty much what life is like, kind of dark, kind of strange, kind of confusing sometimes, doesn't make sense, you learn to appreciate it as a gift from the Lord. But it's not given to teach us about one man's empty search for meaning. In fact, I think it's given to prepare us for the realities of life and to hopefully give us some hope beyond it. That's what Romans 15 says about all the Old Testament Scriptures. It says that, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance, which I think is necessary to life, and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Ecclesiastes is a gift not just to take us down, but perhaps to show us the realities and the harshness and then take us up. So in these last six verses of Ecclesiastes, you have the servant scribe, the guy who's been writing down either everything Solomon been dictating or everything he has at once said and he's gone now. But you have the, the guy who's been writing it kind of address the reader personally. And it serves kind of like an epilogue at the end of the book. And they provide kind of a concluding commentary, a nice bow on the end, declaring why Solomon wrote and, and what exactly he wrote and how we're supposed to respond now that we've read this. And so if you'd read with me in chapter 12, I'm going to go through it a little bit differently. The first two verses, and we'll go through in a few different chunks. Ecclesiastes 12, I'm going to begin in verse 9. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So you see, he steps out and he says, this is what the preacher was doing. So the first thing we need to do is spend some time, like why did Solomon write it all? Why did he write this book 
Ecclesiastes. Now Solomon was the guy who had prayed the great prayer and he had asked the Lord, you know, invited to ask whatever you want, you could ask for. And he says, I want wisdom. And God blessed him with great wisdom. But he didn't hide away like some guru in a mountain and revel in the gift that he received and he just was smart and had people come up to him and he would tell them pithy little statements and they would go away with eyes bright having learned the meaning of life. No, he took that wisdom and he employed it to climb every mountain there was possible and ask every question imaginable. And after summoning every mountain and finding every answer to every question that could be found, he preached the truth. He preached it plainly. And he preached it honestly. And he preached it publicly without regard to what we would describe today as political correctness. Without regard to the approval of men. Because some of the things he says here from the mouth of a preacher are disturbing. He's like, I don't care. This is what it's like. This is the meaning of life. I see evil people succeeding and good people failing. It doesn't even matter how wise you are, how foolish you are, we all die. I hate life. You're like, whoa, dude. You need a sabbatical. Like, that's serious. But he, he just he tells, that's why, that's why I really love it. Because it's honest. And it's not to suggest the other books of the Bible are not, but man, he gets pretty raw. So he found all this, these answers. Asked all these questions that everyone wants to ask, but everyone's afraid to say it out loud. He's like, I'm going to say it publicly without regard to what anyone thinks because I want people to see life for what it really is. And I think in America, we have a pretty good lens by which we're shielded at times about the realities of life. I think one of the hardest things to be a Christian in America is so comfortable. And you can be fooled into believing life is better than it actually is. The preacher is, I would argue, the truest of teachers, sharing what he's learned, even the hardest and ugliest lessons of life, some of which put him in a pretty bad light. He starts declaring, like, I slept with all kinds of women and all kinds of pleasures. You're like, oh, dude. But he's answering those questions that people go, man, if I have more of this, if I have this, it might be, he's like, I'm telling you, more is not better. I've had it. And he does this all so that we, others, anyone who reads his report, won't waste their lives chasing after the wind like he did. So they won't waste their lives chasing after the wind like he did. So Solomon is pastoral, he's not a professional. What I mean by that, he didn't write this book to make a name for himself. He already had one. He wrote it to reveal the emptiness of creation and point people to the Creator. To say all that stuff that, that you love, all that stuff that you're chasing after, all that stuff that you think is going to satisfy, it won't. Whoever is recording Ecclesiastes and writing these last verses describes the great care with which Solomon approached preparing his lesson. He says he pondered deeply. He weighed every idea carefully. He didn't skip across you know, the, the pond, if you will. He dug into every thought, everything that possibly could provide meaning. He knew everything there was to know about what it is he wanted to know. 
He evaluated every possibility. He thought about every perspective. If you're tempted to go, but did he try this? Did he think about this? The scribe is saying, yeah, he did. Unlike us, he didn't seek quick answers on a Google search, right? That's kind of the, the typical thing. Like, you've got a headache, headache, I've got cancer, right? Or whatever it is. Something's broken, YouTube video. That's how we do stuff today. Like, he searched. There was no Google yet. The Romans hadn't invented it, right? It wasn't there yet. So he searched thoroughly, methodically, diligently. His conclusion couldn't be summarized in 140 characters like so many things today are. Rather, he arranged what he learned in Proverbs. Over 4,500 words organized in such a way that they might be read, they might be taught, and they might be remembered. That's Ecclesiastes. So when Solomon says that life is meaningless or this is not going to satisfy, he speaks as one with a PhD in emptiness. And Ecclesiastes is his divine dissertation. Now, in verse 10, the narrative gives us a little more insight into the purposes behind Solomon's teaching. It says that he, the preacher, sought words of delight and uprightness. Delight and uprightness. He uprightly wrote the words of truth. This reminded me of a verse that the Apostle Paul writes in his last letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4. says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead. We don't talk about Jesus as judge of the living and the dead very often. And by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and I ask you, are we here? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I would argue we are there. People are accumulating teachers for themselves. They are seeking out pleasant words regardless if they're upright or not. And Solomon is described as one who sought both words that were pleasant and delightful and upright. His only agenda was the truth. He wanted to find that which was pleasant and delightful and enjoyable to hear, but not at the expense of what was right. We often put those two against each other. That doesn't make me feel good. It must not be true. That makes me unhappy. It must not be true. Because what is true is being governed by something other than actually truth. <laughs> and the authority of God. As one commentator wrote, to be upright but unpleasant 
is to be a fool. But to be pleasant and not upright is to be a charlatan. You need both. And so, Ecclesiastes represents the truth, as does all of the Scriptures. And so Solomon sought the truth, even if it confounded the mind. Even if it offended the senses. That's the very antithesis of how I would argue most people, especially in the spiritual Northwest, pursue truth. They want what feels good, what makes sense, what doesn't offend what I already want to do. What I have already determined is true for me. Solomon sought truth even if it proved countercultural, even if it proved counterintuitive. In his journey, he discovered, which shouldn't be surprising perhaps because of what he's saying here, that the words of truth are often bad for the flesh, even if they're good for the soul. In verses 11 and 12, the servant of Solomon describes the nature of the words in this book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12.11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. So what do we learn? What does he say about the words of this book, the words of wisdom, the words that that were resulted from the big experiment that Solomon has written about here? We learn that genuine words of wisdom hurt, but they also help. They're compared to goads. I'm sure all of you have a goad at home. I doubt any of you have a goad at home. Maybe you do if you're a farmer. It's kind of a, an idea that's lost to us unless we have an agricultural background. Goads were, were typically these kind of long, slender pieces of timber that were blunt on one end and pointed on the other, very sharp. And farmers would use the pointed end to urge you know, a stubborn ox or some kind of cattle into moving, going a certain direction. And occasionally the beast would kick at the goad because it hurt. And the more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of its leg. The harder it fought against the goad, the more it would merely hurt itself and cause more pain. You start making the analogy like, huh, does that sound like us as we kick against the truth that often offends? In our stubbornness and sin, we need the goading power of wisdom. We need it because we are naturally foolish. And even though the goads hurt, they hurt. There's no dismissing the pain because it's, it's piercing, pushing against our flesh. It's pushing against the very things we want. But they are used by who? The Master to guide us on the right path. We ought not fight against Him. The second thing we learn is about the one who's actually doing the goading. The one writing Ecclesiastes is not only 
Solomon. The words of wisdom found in this book, Ecclesiastes. It says, were given by one shepherd. They were given by one shepherd. And who is that shepherd? God. God Himself. I'm not sure that we approach Ecclesiastes or other books of the Bible with a real consciousness of whose words these actually are. And I say that because we are very dismissive of what the plain teaching of Scripture often is. And we hear excuses for not following the plain teaching that sound like this. Well, that's your interpretation. Paul declared in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of Scripture, all of it, including Ecclesiastes, was breathed out by God. And the Apostle Peter writes in his second epistle, saying, again about Scripture, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that is how Solomon is described as of writing Ecclesiastes. It's not just some wise dude with good ideas. It is a man who is inspired by God writing God's words. Here's what this means. In the simplest of terms, you can't just read Ecclesiastes and then dismiss it. You can't just hear the truth of Ecclesiastes and ignore it. Especially the parts that offend you and confound you. Those are the parts you should really press into. Because these words aren't meant just to educate or instruct on one guy's journey or just to get a reaction. They're actually demanding a response. Because they're the very words of God. These are the very words of God. What He wanted us to know. That life is meaningless apart from Him. It's what God wants us to know. From the beginning, man had a choice whether they were going to believe the Word of God or they were going to believe the words of God's enemies. And I'm here to tell you the same choice exists. Here we're warned by the scribe speaking about Solomon's words, whom he just said are actually God's words. And he says, don't go beyond these words. Don't go beyond these words. He said in verse 12, My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books. Our world is full of many counselors, many preachers, many books. Did you know that in 2019 so far, there's actually a count. In 2019 so far, July 7th, there has been over 1.3 million books published. In 2019, this year, seven months in, 1.3 million books published. I have a real weakness. I buy lots of books. Right? I don't read all the books I buy, but I like them. And they're there. 
And then I slowly read them. But like I could buy books every day. Oh, ooh, there's a ooh, I like that idea. Like it's amazing how much we give ourselves to books and how little we give ourselves to the book. How much we give ourselves to stranger things. I got two more episodes left. How much we give ourselves to Netflix and podcasts and conferences and all kinds of words from all kinds of places and how little time we give to the very words of life. There are plenty of other words out there that we could listen to. There's a countless number of books published, a countless number of videos posted, a countless number of podcasts produced, and as Ecclesiastes said, there's truly no end to it. The competing noise of other counselors is deafening. And again, speaking in the last days, about the last days, again, the Apostle Paul describes how difficult times are going to get because of all the noise of different counselors. He warns the church to avoid certain people, especially those who have the appearance of godliness, but are in fact quite godless. This is what he writes in, again, the last letter, 2 Timothy He's speaking about these people. He says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. And look at verse 7. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Does that not sound like our culture today? So much to learn. So much to know. Constantly looking at our phones. Watching videos. Reading taking more and more information, but dare I say, never arriving at the knowledge of truth. Asking every question the same questions because there's nothing new under the sun over and over and over again and not arriving at the truth. The world is full of many words, but there is only one Word of God. One word that our Creator has spoken. One word that, that we need to know. The, the rest is a bonus. We celebrate. I say we as in the culture, but we're certainly a part of that. We're not outside of that. We celebrate the idea of being open-minded. You can watch as people encourage or praise people who are open-minded. Man, you're an open-minded Christian. You go, what does that mean? I think I know what you think that means, and I don't think I agree with what you think you know it means. It's an idea of always learning and never arriving at the truth. It's the same thing Paul was talking about. And G.K. Chesterton said something, I paraphrase him, he said an open mind is like an open mouth. It was designed to close on something. And at some point, you have to close on something. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, there's some things to close on here. There's some things that you know, answer some questions that don't need to be asked anymore because here are the answers. And so, he gets to the very end here in these last two verses. He's like, here it is. So did you know you could have skipped to the end and saw what the whole thing was all about, right? Here it is. 
So to summarize real quick what's been said, after a careful, comprehensive investigation by Solomon, he wrote Ecclesiastes not only to teach, but to painfully prod us towards meaning in life. But these are not just Solomon's words, right? He's not the one hurting us. It's God shepherding us, God feeding us, God protecting us and guiding us to a point. And in many ways, that point is Him drawing us to Him. And our failure to respond to this sharp nudge as we foolishly keep searching for answers is only going to hurt ourselves and wear us out. And so... In the view of Solomon's first student, his best student, the guy that's been listening to everything, what does he say? He goes, here's the end of the matter. The matter? Well, what's the matter? Meaning in life. The end of emptiness. He's like, if you want to know what the message of Ecclesiastes is, here it is in verse 13 to 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if you think about the bookends of Ecclesiastes, first words, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And what's the middle? This is meaningless, and this is meaningless, and this is meaningless, and this is meaningless, and this is meaningless. And at the end, fear God and obey His commands. The end of the matter, the final conclusion, the most important thing that is said when everything has been heard that needs to be heard, fear God and obey Him. This is not merely good advice to be a good Christian. This is the expectation. This is the information, the truth for everybody. This is the whole duty of every human. The one thing for everyone. Fear God and obey His commands. Now, the Bible teaches that the fear of God is the very thing that often characterizes those who believe. And yet, I won't make you do this, few believers actually can explain what it means to fear God. They have an idea. And although we can't often explain it, I would argue that it's pretty obvious when someone does or does not. That's weird. In Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon had warned us about the emptiness of religion. About the emptiness of of routine. The emptiness of going through the motions. And he said, guard your steps when you enter into the presence of God. Be careful what you say in the presence of God. Don't forget whose presence you're going into. Many approach the God of the universe with an incredibly cavalier attitude. Some of us even using the Gospel to justify our carelessness. Not to justify our confidence, to justify our arrogance. We arrogantly approach the throne. We, as Mark said in our elder meeting, we high-five homeboy Jesus. 
thinking, oh, that, that's kind of funny. We're like, wait a second. As we enter into the presence of our King, our Creator, yes, He's our example. Yes, He is our friend. But Jesus is our Creator. Jesus is the King, the Judge of the living and the dead. Shouldn't we be falling on our faces? Shouldn't we automatically want to guard what we say and guard what we do and be careful knowing who God is? In Proverbs, Solomon teaches that the fear of the Lord is where knowledge and wisdom begin. We cannot know anything without adoring the greatness of God. God is awesome. And when you hear that, you hear, God is awesome. Right? You hear it in a weird way because awesome is a word that's just been destroyed. As has words like reverence and sacred. More than just cool, the word awesome is actually defined to mean to be filled with awe. To be extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, and fear. Fear. God's awesome power, God's wisdom, God's beauty, God's perfection is supposed to fill us with fear. But this is more than just like being intimidated by the Creator of the universe where you're shivering and scared in your bed like the boogeyman underneath your bed is there. Like that kind of fear. Fearing God is about seeing Him for actually who He is and seeing Him in such a way that it changes our disposition towards Him and even ourselves. Solomon has said a lot about God in Ecclesiastes. It's kind of shocking and I say shocking because God is much bigger than we thought and we're much smaller than we thought. Like, Ecclesiastes, if you were to summarize another way, say, by the way, you control nothing. No matter how much good you do or evil you do, you're all going to die. There's no guarantees. You control nothing. You go, oh. It makes us really small. And it makes God really big. Solomon has revealed throughout the book that God is the creator of all things and sovereign over all things. That God is the one who gives and that God is the one who takes away. That God is the one who brings prosperity and adversity. That God is the one who decides who lives and dies. That God is the one who decides who lives, who dies, when they die, and how they die. God is the one who actually gives wealth. God is the one who withholds wealth. God is the one who gives joy or withholds joy. God is the one who gives suffering or withholds suffering. God is the one who punishes evil and rewards righteousness. If not now, then certainly in eternity. God is the one that knows the future and God has said that the world is unfolding exactly as He has planned and nothing you can do or I can do is going to change His will and how it ends. That's God. And we go, hmm, I don't know if I'd like 
Don't kick against the goad. Those are big ideas. Those are troubling ideas. Those are awe-inspiring, fear-creating ideas. And they're not just ideas. There's truths about our God who is much bigger than we think He is. As Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes 3.14, just listen to this basic truth. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Did you hear that? Why is He controlling everything? Why is He governing everything? Why is He making all things? So that we would fear Him. God wants us to fear Him. God wants us to have Him at our center. God wants Him to be our greatest loyalty. God wants Him to be our greatest longing, our greatest love. The most important person in our life governing everything else. He wants us to fear Him. And what happens when someone doesn't fear God? Solomon's already said what happens. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before Him. Did you hear that? continues, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Here's the summary. If you don't fear God, it doesn't end well for you. Period. And I'm talking about this life. I'm talking about the next. The fear of God puts all other fears in their place. The fear of God puts all other fears in their place. Because that is why oftentimes we choose wickedness. That is why we choose that which is not God. We fear something else other than God. Without the fear of God, those who don't fear God, guess what? You're only accountable to yourself. And as a result, without the fear of God, you begin to function as your own authority. You begin to dictate what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad according to your eyes. And there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Without fear, we are governed by every other fear, real or imagined. Without the fear of God, we embody Ecclesiastes. And we live empty lives for ourselves that end in death. We end up being a people who are self-seeking, self-serving, self-indulgent, self-dependent, and doomed to die for our selfishness. That's what happens when you do not fear God. And so the question for all of us is simply this. Do you fear God? And I mean beyond words. Is your life lived in such a way that someone would, man, that, that guy is governed by something outside of this world. Those who fear God live their lives under the sun and under God. Those who fear God worship God in all that they do. And the clearest manifestation of our worship, what we maybe could describe as fear made tangible, 
is guess what? Our obedience. Our obedience. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Romans chapter 12 where Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. What is that? That's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you devoted in your life to going, what is the will of God? I want to know the will of God. I want to live the will of God. The will of God and His desires for my life is the most important thing in my life. If that is not you, you do not fear God. And if you do not fear God, you are not a Christian. Plain and simple. Now, I know I say that, but I also need to say that obedience motivated by the fear of hell doesn't save. No one is ever scared into heaven. No one. But there is a real fear, a genuine fear for those who do not believe. There is someone you ought fear, but there doesn't have to be. This is what the Apostle John writes about fear. It's really interesting. The Apostle John seems to say something different. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Never fears, punishment has not been perfected in love. But there's this paradox. I'm supposed to fear, but if I fear, I don't have love. No, it's fear of something, specifically punishment. Did you know King David said the same kind of thing in Psalm 25? He said, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear God. What? Am I a friend or am I supposed to be scared? Yes. Jesus doesn't remove fear from a relationship as much as He changes a relationship with the one we fear. He doesn't remove fear from the relationship. He changes the relationship to the one that we fear. We fear Him, but we see Him differently. And I've always appreciated how C.S. Lewis describes it. And I probably quoted it a thousand times in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As Susan is talking about the lion that she wants to be close to and she wants to, to, to know and to love And this is what is said by Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I, thought, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do we see Jesus like that? Or is Jesus just my homeboy? All right, Jesus, you're my friend. Woo! Jesus is not safe in that sense. Jesus is Lord, and he is Savior, he is King, and he is a merciful and gracious friend. 
Solomon says that fearing the king who loves you but who is not safe is the most important thing in your life. Without question, the gospel changes the fear of the Lord. So God is no longer our judge. He becomes our Father. And even though we love our Father, our perfect Father, we respect Him and we now desire to please Him where there was once fear of condemnation, we now have an awe-filled affection. But it's still awe-filled. It's still a fearful affection. As I close, I want us to understand as I've pushed really hard on obedience, and I think we're like scared to do that. We're scared to, to read verses where it says, do what is pleasing to the Lord. Isn't He pleased in everything because of Jesus? Yes and no. Yes, He is pleased. Yes, you're covered in Christ, but He still desires to delight and the fear of God should push us to want to please Him. But he doesn't expect perfection. The cross, if nothing else, is the revelation that God planned for our failure. He planned for our failure. The beauty is that I fear God, but I don't fear failure because he already knows I've failed. He knows places that you failed before you've even failed yet. That while he was, you were a failure. Before you were even born, he saw your failures, he died for you. That's the radical love of Christ that, that produces an awe in us, an awe worthy to be feared. And as we are captivated by the goodness of God, we begin to see the world as Solomon did empty. And we realize that the things of this world, whether they be relationships, whether they be pleasures, whether they be achievements, or even piety, they're incapable of filling up the emptiness in our heart. Life is empty. But just because life is empty doesn't mean your heart needs to be empty. And only God can end that emptiness. And that's why we read the verse this morning out of Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to hear the prayer the Apostle Paul does. Paul doesn't say, I pray that they will obey. I pray that they'll do everything right and not tick off God. It's not what he prays. Here's what he prays. To read it carefully in the context of the emptiness of heart and the emptiness we feel, what does he say? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Here's why he's praying. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So there's some adoration of God to be feared. According to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that you can do everything perfectly, right? No. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in perfect morality, no, in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that why? Emptiness. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That you may no longer be empty in this empty life. 
Ecclesiastes asks what can truly fill that eternal emptiness that all men have. The answer, nothing under the sun. But because we couldn't reach up to God beyond the sun, if you will, God reaches down under the sun and He sends His Son to die in our place that we might live. He emptied Himself, Jesus, in order to fill our emptiness with Himself. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and he was right. Jesus Christ is the only one to actually bring something new under the sun. Through faith in His death in your place, through faith in His resurrection three days later, through faith that He is returning again, He gives you new birth and new life and new desires and new hope you know what that's called? Meaning. It gives you meaning. And it's a meaning that can ever be taken away even if death comes. Because it's the only meaning that actually conquered death. My prayer is if you don't know Jesus Christ, that today you will surrender your life to Him. And my other prayer is if you say you know Jesus Christ and you're living as if you don't actually fear Him, that you will get on your face confess your sin and celebrate the Savior who is both feared and to be loved at the same time. Let's pray.